Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Hi, everyone. My name is Keith Bowes, and I'm the Managing Director for Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources is an Australian-listed company that acquired the Kalakira Uranium Project from Paladin Energy in March of last year. The project itself is currently on care and maintenance, but Lotus is in the process of undertaking a number of technical studies with the aim that within a relatively short period, depending, of course, on the uranium price, we will be able to restart the asset back up again. Brilliant. Good to see you again, Keith. Have you been well? Nice to see you again. Doing very well. Thank you. And you? You're not bad. So sorry, we've, we've, we've um, got out here a little bit late. So apologies for that. Sort of eight o'clock your time in Perth. So I appreciate you coming on. Hey, so things have been good since we last spoke. You're at uh, 12 cents up to 17. It's been a, been a bumpy old ride in the last three months. It has. It's been a very, very busy time since uh, we last had a conversation. Lots of activities on our side. Yeah. And I hope that's been reflected in the share prices you mentioned. Uh, we were a little bit higher than the 17 cents a couple of weeks ago, but obviously there's been some change in the market over the last two weeks. And I think all of us have seen a, a bit of a drift down since then. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, what do, what do you think is going on there? Was that just the feds? Was it uh, people nervous about another black swan event with Taishan? What's going on? Yeah, that uh, Taishan thing seemed to trigger some uh, reaction from the market, let's say. I think it was probably oversold a little bit maybe in some way. Um, I think from our perspective as well, we know it's the end of our financial year as well. So we do expect or do normally see a little bit of a sell-off at the end of the financial year as some investors are looking to cash in either for their bonuses if they're a broker or if they're an individual investor, maybe some capital gains tax they have to pay. So, yeah, I think that's probably some of the issues that have come up. None of the directors are selling, are they? No, none of the directors are selling. Okay. All very, very solid on our side. Right. Well, look, um, we had a really good catch up back in March, beginning of March. Uh, I'm going to point people to the link below to be able to sort of see the conversation. I thought it was a great conversation around business plan strategy, the team and, you know, what you're, what you're trying to do there. So no need to go over old ground, but do look at that if you're interested in investing in Lotus. And just put hand up from me. I am now a shareholder of Lotus off the back of that conversation. So, um, it's, you know, not completely. Well, I'm trying to be unbiased, but, you know, Full disclosure there. Um, you've done a few things since we last spoke, and I just I just wanted to get an update from you as to how things are progressing. You say it's been a little bit of a bumpy ride, market stuff, uh, I suspect, um, mostly. But should we start with the easy stuff? Done an OTC listing, seems sensible. Went smoothly? Went very, very smoothly for us. Yeah, we were actually quite surprised at how smooth it was. It was a relatively simple thing from our perspective to do the OTC listing. But of course, you have to recognize that it's not the OTC listing itself that's going to increase your share price. It's all the marketing and all those types of things that have to be done afterwards. And that's what we're really busy with at the moment. We've, um, we've appointed a few people, or at least a broker over in Canada and a market maker in the US who's helping us introduce to be introduced to a number of different funds and probably spent the last week or two on a number of calls talking about Lotus, talking about the Calacara project and our plans going forward. So it's a work in progress at the moment, but I'm very, very happy with the way things have performed on the OTC. Brilliant. Okay, well, let's, we'll, we'll keep track of that and see if that's working for you. North America's a big market. Uh, right, now we get into the meat of it. You have done a, a roll-up. You are now an 85% uh, holder of the asset. Um, do you want us to tell us? You will. Holder. Not close yes, yet. On okay. the shareholder. We have a shareholder meeting, which we're seeking approval for the roll-up, which will occur next month. 
Got it. Uh, we don't see any issues with that, as was actually the shareholders who asked us to initiate the roll-up. So we're very, very confident we'll go through without any issues. Okay, so not closed, will close. Um, you better explain to people who the parties uh, involved are. So obviously Grant Davey is a is a the, the name that people see. Uh, is it just him? No, it's not. He's got a number of other people that were involved in the original deal in terms of the original negotiations and that kind of stuff. And the shareholdings that he has is actually distributed uh, between that group. So it's not individually him that owns all of those shares. He does actually split it out to the people who have supported him and we're working with him during the, uh, during the negotiation process. Okay. I, I wouldn't mind spending a little bit of time just helping people understand how things like this happen because, you know, he's obviously an insider. He can't be part of the negotiation as to what that's worth. Neither can you for that matter. So Correct. how did you go about making that happen? How did it get priced? Why is that a fair price? So the way that it works from our perspective is that our two non-exec directors on our board, so that's Michael Bowen, our chairman, and Mark Hanlon, who's our non-exec director, they effectively formed a subcommittee that was responsible for the roller. And as part of that committee, they appointed both an independent technical expert so an independent technical expert did a review of the project and assigned a value to the project. So he looked at it purely from a project perspective, and there's a number of different methodologies that he can use to have a look at the valuation of the project. He looked at two or three of those and then provided that information to the independent expert who then generated an independent expert report. So the independent expert report was done by BDO, and what they do in their independent experts report is they look at the value of a share prior to the roll-up, and then they look at a value of the share post the roll-up because of the additional assets that the company gains through the process, i.e. they actually go from the 65% to the 85% value of the asset in future discounted cash flow models, of course, there'll be more money coming back into Lotus, and they do that evaluation. Now, there's a couple of things behind it, whether you're considered to be a minority shareholder before or after the issue is something that comes into the calculations. But they look at all those different issues and they present a, uh, a report effectively, which is shared with our shareholders that claims it is a fair or unfair or reasonable or unreasonable uh, result for a shareholder. So at the moment, we're seeing this as a fair and reasonable uh, result for the shareholder. That document, along with the summary of all the points that were raised by the independent expert, are then presented at the shareholder meeting, which, as I said, will be held in July next year, uh, next financial year. So that's next month. And then on the back of that, we expect the shareholders to approve that, and then we'll be able to then execute the deal. Okay, so I know the, I know the shareholders have got to vote on it, so they're going to vote one way or the other. Um, okay. But how independent can these independent experts be if you're paying them? It's Yes, that does seem to be a potential issue there. We are going to companies that do this type of thing as their regular job, let's say. BDO does this on a regular basis for a number of companies on the ASX. So they are well known in the space in terms of being an independent reviewer, in terms of being an independent expert that does it. So there's a fixed compensation agreed to upfront. And as they state clearly in any documentation or agreements that we sign, that the result of the report is not dependent on their payment. So there is independence there. And as I said, it is a well-known process in Australia, and we are using companies that do this on a regular basis. 
Yeah, I guess like it's all you can, I, I ask because you know it's it's well it gets asked of us you know and I, and I think it's a fair question because it's it's uh, sometimes it's you know legit and above board and sometimes it's it's a little bit more opaque. Um, okay, so that, that vote's going to happen. Let's assume it happens. So what, what, I know you've been asked by shareholders to do it, but what's it going to do for the company? Why is it a good thing that it happens? I think. I mean, it's obviously good for the company, I think, from two perspectives. One thing is if we do go out and raise debt for the company, I do believe when you go to a bank and whether we're a 65% shareholder or an 85% shareholder, the capital raise has got to be done by Lotus Resources. The other people are effectively free carried up to a certain point. The government's always free carried. The minority shareholders carried up to about a $10 million expenditure. So the expectation is that being by being an 85% shareholder, it will be easier for the company to get the debt for the company from one perspective. I think that also plays a role when we go out and do the offtake as well, because we're an 85% shareholder of the company, I think it'll be easier to get offtake because we are negotiating on effectively on the full production. The government of Malawi is never going to sell their uh, portion of the yellow cake. It will always fall under the lotus sphere. So I think from that perspective, we get a much better opportunity to negotiate with that, with either the lenders or with the off-takers. Okay. Okay. Um, let's talk about just there's a few sort of outliers that I, I want to talk about because the, the, I want to get on to um, a new hire that you've done and also some of the, some of the technical developments that you've, you've done. But um, Hylia project, I think it was just about a month after we spoke. Um, what What's happening there? So with Hylia, so Hylia was the original Cobalt project that Lotus Resources held prior to the acquisition of the Calacara project. Now, that Cobalt project is located over in New South Wales. With the acquisition of Calacara, it became non-core. And there's another Australian company, um, Clean Tech, who owns uh, tenements very, very close to our Hylia tenements, approached us and made an offer to buy our tenements off us. It was a very, very easy deal for us to do as we had no intention really on developing those assets. Let's get some cash in. We've still got a little bit of exposure to the company moving forward because we still own some shares in Sunrise, but we get some cash with and can move on with some of our own work. Just because that was a million in cash, a million and a half in shares, right? Correct. Okay, yeah. so that's parked up. You have some potential upside further down the line, one hopes. Okay. Um, that's correct. Right, so let's, 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 you've recruited someone to do the, the sales and marketing for you, and they're US-based. So first of all, who is it and um, why now? Uh, so the marketing executive that we've appointed is uh, Bob Rich or Robert Rich. He's located over in uh, New York. And the reason why I, why I was quite excited to get him on board is that I recognize, first of all, he's got a lot of experience within the industry. So he's probably been in the industry for about 30 years or so. And importantly, he's worked with Australian companies before. So he was involved in the sale of uranium for Paladins. So that was from the Calacara asset as well as the Langer Heinrich. He also worked for WMC and BHP Billison when they were selling the uranium from um, Olympic Dam as well. So he's got a lot of experience from that side. But also really interesting for me is he's also got experience on the buy side as well. So he's worked for nuclear utilities as well, where he's been a buyer of yellow cake for them as well. So I think he really understands both sides of the equation. Being located in New York, of course, helps. And he knows, I mean, he's been in the industry for a long, long time. So he knows a lot of the buyers at the various utilities as well. So I think he's a great asset to our team moving forward. 
Right. So what sort of information are you getting from him in terms of how you need to be set up? He must be feeding into that conversation internally because we're we're getting little feedback from various CEOs that we're talking to. And it seems that the utilities are not quite as um, conservative in, in, in terms of what they say in the market. They do feed back to people in well who are in the know as a result. And are you getting any of that feedback? Is that affecting any of your decision making? We're starting to see some of that. I wouldn't say it's got to the point now where it's affecting our decision making. So what I've really tasked Bob with doing is actually starting to interact with the various utilities. And he's confident that all of Calacara's production, so that's somewhere between two and a half million and three million pounds in any year, could effectively be sold into the US utilities. That was his first comment to me. He's, he's got a high confidence in that. But I've tasked him with starting to build up the relationships with the various utilities that he thinks we can interact with. And then importantly, because our team itself doesn't have a huge amount of experience within the marketing of the, of the uranium and the yellow cake. I've asked him to put a marketing plan together for me in terms of how we should address the thing. What type of marketing contracts should we be looking for? Should we be focused on the medium term? Should we be focused on long term? Should we be leaving some of our yellow cake for the spot market would be another question as well. I mean, I think as a strategy that if we wanted to make sure that we effectively could benefit from any increase in the spot price moving forward, we'd want to sign up for contract enough yellow cake that covers all of our costs. So we are 100% confident that at any point in time, all of our operating costs are covered by these fixed contracts. But then should we leave the remainder of the yellow cake or the remainder of the production open to the spot market and get our profits from that? So that's the types of questions that I'm asking Robert to have a look at, to have a think about and come back with some strategies for it. We also recognize that you don't just suddenly start yellow, uh, selling yellow cake as well. You've got to be in a position where you've got accounts with Convidine, accounts with Cameco, accounts with Orano and all these types of things. So we want to start working on those types of areas as well, such that when we do actually start to produce and start to sell, we've got all the basics set up in place and we're not running around trying to achieve all of those you know, in, a, in a very small amount of time before our first production comes online. So would that marketing plan be made public once it's agreed? Um, it hasn't been discussed yet. It's potentially some of it would become public. I think, I think we'll be quite happy talking about the high level, uh, concepts of which we're promoting in the marketing plan. I don't think we want to release some of the more detailed stuff in terms of the specifics and specifically who we're targeting maybe, but I think as a concept level in terms of how we're going to approach our marketing strategy, I think I'd be quite happy to share that with the market, yes. So a few of your peers have gone out to market, raised a bunch of cash in the last couple of months and bought physical the market. It's, it's, it's a strategy. Why did you guys decide not to do that? I think the, uh, the, the main reason why we didn't decide to go and do it is that one of the benefits that I see behind that process is that obviously we're all very, very confident in terms of the uranium price going up and we all recognize that the price has got to be higher than what it is now for us to be able to come back into production. If we look at that scenario and we say, right, if we go and buy yellow cake now at $30 per pound or thereabouts, and we hold on to it until the point of time where we want to start production, most developers are talking around $60 per pound. You could then sell that yellow cake, generate cash, so therefore the amount of capital you have to raise for the restart of the asset is a lot less. That to me makes sense. It makes sense if you've got a relatively high capital number. We're only got $50 million we have to raise 
from talking to a number of people, we think that's going to be really easy to do. And we reckon we, if necessary, you could do the majority of it through debt financing at a bank as well. So the attractiveness of that is not really that high for us. I think what I would like to do, if it was possible, would be to get an, a call option on uranium. I think that would be a really interesting one to get, but those are quite difficult to come by. Okay, but so it was a consideration. It, it was, was a discussion. It was a discussion that you had internally. I mean, what did you what did you Correct. think when you saw a lot of people doing that? Did, did that make a lot of sense to you? Did it come up? Was a, a as I said, from people who have got you know from people who may have higher capitals than us, I could understand it. I think that the other comment that they always make in the news releases when they talk about it is that it would provide a utility with confidence that they can actually deliver into the contract on the timing that they're spoken about. So if they had any problems with ramp up or anything like that with their project, they've always got an inventory that they can go back to and sell into the contract. As being a proven producer, having produced the three million pounds of the plant, I'm less worried about ramp up than maybe some of the other guys out there as well. So that again, wasn't a really attraction for me. Our low capital means you know, I'm not that keen about it either. So we decided in the long run, if we're going to raise money, we'd prefer to do other things with the money, either build the plant or do an exploration program, develop our rare earth um, option or something like that. I guess you need to have had the skills in-house to be able to go out and find and transact on a deal like that. And that's only a recent thing for you. Correct. But we did have a conversation with potential um, traders and they said they could get the product for us relatively easily. So from that perspective, it, it didn't appear to be that difficult. Of course, the price was always a discussion, but actually physically going out and buying it in the discussions with the traders and we just opened up, spoke to a couple of traders and it seems to be a relatively simple exercise, to be honest with it a little bit simpler than I thought it was. But you still needed all those backup things. You still needed your accounts at Convidine or wherever you were going to be storing the material. And we didn't have those in place at that point in time. That's really interesting that they say it was easy. We've had conversations with groups who say it was tough. We've had, we had to buy from multiple sources. We're saying it, it's really tight out there. It's hard to get. Mind you, if someone's pitching you, everything's easy, right? Um, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we were just asking them their, their opinion instead of a firm offer. Maybe that was what the difference was. <laughs> True, true. Well, Luke, let's, let's move on to some of the, the technical things that you've been up to again in the, in the last three months since we last spoke. Okay, I saw a release about um, the ore sorter. That's interesting. What were you looking at? What were you trying to work out? And, and what were the answers? So I think as we mentioned in the previous interview, that one of the things that we did from the scoping study that we announced in October of last year we identified four areas that we thought had the main or could potentially have the biggest impact on our cash costs moving forward for when we operate. And ore sorting was one of those key ones. Now, ore sorting is a technology that I've looked at previously in other projects. It's a technology that I know other uranium companies have had a look at and have had some success with. And even when we went and had a look through histor uh, Paladin's historical test work database, that also done some test work around ore sorting at a purely concept level and showed that the material at um, Calacara is suitable for ore sorting. Now, the reason why we're so excited about it and the reason why we're so encouraged by the results, I think there's a couple of things that ore sorting can do for Calacara. On a really, really simple basis, if you remember when we spoke about the uh, scoping study, we had a, um, two scenarios in it. One scenario was high grade, a second scenario was high grade for the first eight years and then treating stockpiles for the latter six years of it. 
ore sourcing for me is particularly applicable to that lower grade material in the back end of the schedule. If we take something that has about 400 ppm of uranium in it, which for us is a relatively low grade, put that through an ore sorting unit and we're able to increase that grade to 700 or 800 ppm or so, and then feed that into the main plant, it becomes a lot more economic for us to treat. The test work that we reported on a couple of weeks ago showed again or confirmed for us again that the Calacara ore is applicable to the, um, to the ore sorting technology. And we were able to get an increase in grade. We're still crunching the numbers at the moment, but somewhere between 1.5 and 2 factor. So that was what we were talking about, the 400 to 800 ppm there. So I think that's a real good option for uh, ore sorting. There's another one that I think that we spoke a little bit about as well, that is perhaps a little more difficult, but could potentially also have some benefit as well. We know that acid consumption on the plant is a particularly key driver for us in terms of both throughput and costs. If we were able to get an ore sorting technology that was sensitive enough to identify calcite rocks that contain very little uranium and reject that from the system, our overall acid consumption would drop off. And I think that'd be very, very beneficial for the project, not only for the lower grade materials, but perhaps even for the higher grade materials. And then the other thing as well, which we're just playing around with is, as um, I hope we'll talk about, we've just started an exploration program as well. So, so, so before we go on to that, I, I do have a question around the exploration, I do, but I just want to stick on the sure. sorting to understand the process. So you, you've got a couple of options there and you, you're, you're playing around with it at the moment. So when did decisions get made? Do you end up with two ore sorters or is it just pick the, the optimum, one optimum sorter and what's the cost involved? You know, when would you need to you know, put the order in, that sort of thing? So the ore sorting technology that we're having a look at when we reported on the results, we talked about two different types of sensors. We talked about a color sensor and we talked about an XRT sensor, which is effectively density, density at a nuclear level almost on the system. Now, those aren't two separate machines. Those are the same machine with each detector turned on or turned off. So what we're going to have a look at now is we did that as a first pass to try and understand the benefit of each detector. In reality, I think the final solution is going to be a combination of both detectors running at the same time. So, for example, a very high density material that picks up from the XRT stuff but happens to be light in color would be accepted by the XRT but rejected by the color system. But because it's high density, we would be confident it has a high grade of uranium in it, so we want it to be accepted. And again, if you look at the reverse, if you've got a dark material that would be accepted by the optical, but has a very low density, we don't want that because we don't think it has the uranium in it. So using a combination of the two, we think is the way to go. And that's what our next stage of test work is gonna be doing, is looking at both of those detectors together, as well as widening the range of feed materials that we're gonna test. Because for the initial proof of concept test, we, we used a relatively high grade material. So does that, is that like, would that be one pass? We, that, would it need to pass through right. two? Right, okay. Because I'm thinking energy, which is another thing that you've been looking at, energy solutions. That's correct. So as we've mentioned previously, the uh, power source on site is from diesel gensets. We know two things, diesel gensets are expensive. We also know from a carbon footprint, diesel gensets are not the best option to have as well. So we're looking at some alternatives for that. And the alternatives for us are either connecting to the national grid so there's a, a substation that is part of the grid that is located in Karonga, which is about 30 kilometers 
as the crow flies from our site to the town. So not too far away and relatively simple and cheap for us to put a transmission liners. That we're having discussions with ESCOM, which is the Malawian utility now about that. The other alternative is that because we have an acid plant on site that produces sulfuric acid, we can use the heat generated from that sulfuric acid plant to run a steam turbine and generate power from that. So we've asked Autotech to do a study for us on that. And their initial results are coming back and telling us that we can generate something between about 1.9 to maybe two or just over two megawatts of power from our acid plant. Now that's significant because our total power draw on the plant is only eight megs. So 25% of our power coming off our acid plant for effectively $0. It doesn't cost us anything really to run that. So we get really cheap power from that. And then, of course, the last option we're having a look at is solar, wind, and the, and the battery option as well, whether we can get a blend of that. I personally think that the final solution is going to be a combination of all of them. I don't think we're just going to go down one route. I think we're going to Im um, implement all of them. So I think that's going to be a really good result for us. What's the timing on decision-making on that? Um, I'm hoping to be able to get the feedback from the uh, ESCOM, uh, the Malawian utility, probably within the next month or two. Uh, the report from Autotech is going to be available early next month, so we'll have that data. I'm still working with some of the suppliers around the solar, but again, it's a relatively simple task we're asking them to do. Once we've got all that information together, we're going to be sitting down with some guys who will run some discounted models for us and work out the optimum mix for us. So I would think within the next two to three months, we'll have a solution on that. We'll have a result on that that we want to move forward on. How's your cash position? Uh, $29 million at the moment of which I think as we discussed last time, a portion of that is restricted because it's associated with the surety bond on our environmental uh, liabilities. So that's about $13 million. So we've got uh, $16, $17 million in the bank at the moment. We have seen a lot of our options or warrants being exercised over the last few months. We still have a substantial number outstanding that are well in the money. And I would expect to see those exercised as well as we move forward. Okay, what do you think that's going to, what could that bring in? I think it's another $5 million that we can bring in from our warrants and options. Okay, so you're, you're good for a while. And then just in time, I know it's a bit of old ground from, from previous conversation, but when, when are you going to be at that point where you are going to work out where your money's coming from or make decisions about where your money's coming from? I know it's $50 million, it's not a lot of money, but and you've had conversations, but where are you on that? So the way that I see or the way that we've planned going forward is we've got these studies that I've spoken about. We want to start a feasibility study relatively soon. And I can see that kicking off towards the end of July, probably the beginning of August. I would see a feasibility study taking us nine to 10 months to complete. So probably around the middle of next year, we would be in a position where we've got an updated feasibility study with all of our cost estimates in it, including our capital cost estimates that have been updated, and whether that includes or excludes things like all sorting, we would have made a decision by then. So we'll really know what the number is by middle of next year. With a feasibility study behind us, I think the opportunity to go and open up the discussions with the banks will become obvious. Um, again, there's the proviso always is, what is the uranium price going to be at that point in time? We need to have a uranium price that is um, that we can live with in order to be able to pull the trigger to start the mine back up again. Yeah, you and everyone else. Um, let's talk exploration. What's happening? You've got you've got yes. money. So how much are you going to spend? Uh, we've got a program. We've got a five thousand meter RC drill program, which is going to cost us just a little over a million dollars. So it's really it's just the first program for us. 
is focused around the perimeter of the existing resource, so where the pit is. We have identified some extensions that we think we can easily, by drilling them out, add them to the resource. So that's some fairly easy ground that we think we can do. But we've also identified a number of anomalies, radiometric anomalies, that are about two to four kilometers or so away from the main pit. So that is within easy tracking distance. They look very, very similar to the Calacara deposit from a radiometric perspective. The geologists on the ground tell us the geology looks very, very similar, but they are a lot smaller than the Calacara pit. So they would be looked at as like satellite pits or something like that. There's five of them. We're probably going to go and drill the two or three most prospective of them uh, shortly, see what results we get from that. And then if we see some really good results, either in those satellite uh, deposits or on the extensions, we have some cash in the bank to continue with the drilling program as well. So that's what we're looking at on, on the uranium side. We're also going to do a little bit of drilling around the rare earths as well. So as we've mentioned, we have this rare earth anomaly to the north of the pits, about two kilometers or so. We did our own work last year on it in terms of some field programs, some trenching work, sampling and those types of things. We're going to go back there and have a little bit more of a look at it, do some more trenches, put down a couple of holes and see if we can define exactly what the footprint of this rare earth mineralization as well is. And once we understand that, how best do we get value for the company from that, uh, from that rare earth deposit? Are you the guys to do that? Um, I think there's some options going forward. I think we'd like to understand what the size and the potential of it is before we were to enter into any negotiations and whether that be a JV, whether we spin it out or whether we do something ourselves, that decision will be made once we've got some more information. Right, okay, that, that'll be interesting. It's obviously things heating up there with, uh, with rare earths at the moment, you're gonna be faced with the obvious China question at some point along the way, they always are. Um, hey, well, Keith, thanks for the update. I like that, um, you've been busy. Yes, thank you very much. It's been a very busy period. I think we've got another busy couple of months ahead of us as well. Yeah, I hope so. Well, um, stay in touch and let us know how you get on with it with the next sort of round of work. So what should we be looking out for? The next six months, what's happening? Just just give us that reminder. So in the next six months, I think you're going to see the results of the ore sorting, which hopefully will be very, very positive and we'll be able to explain exactly how the project's going to benefit from the ore sorting technology. We'll get the results from our power studies in terms of our expected power costs for the study going forward. The results from our exploration results from our uranium exploration, and some more definition around the rare earths as well. And then, of course, the initiation of the uh, feasibility study, which will start with all the engineering works and some timelines associated with that as well. Which And you've got the money to deliver that. Brilliant. Okay, Keith, stay in touch. Let us know how you get on, okay? Excellent. Thank you very much. Good to see you again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.